Welcome back to episode 19 of the Nourish Your Potential podcast. My name is Kushla and today I'm joined by a gorgeous friend of mine, Sarah Widowson, who some of you may know from your monthly. Sarah is a fellow dietitian and we're basically bonded over our shared passion for running, dogs and the dietetic work we do. If you've listened to some of the other podcasts Sarah has been on before, I'm trying not to repeat a lot of that information and diving into a few other topics that I'm keen to discuss together. Sarah, thank you for joining me. How has the weekend been? Hello, darling. It has been lovely. I have a six-week-old little boy, so my weekends are no longer about sleep-ins and doing whatever I want to do, but we've managed to enjoy some slowness, which is nice. Um, yeah, and thank you for having me. It feels nice just to have like a chat with a friend that's being recorded. <laughs> yeah, I know. It will be pretty natural. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. So how is the new mum life going? It's good. It's hard. I feel like, um, I don't know, I, like, I love information and I read all the books and I did all the antenatal courses and I thought I had it. And then you get this baby in your arms and it's completely different to how you thought it would be. But I'm loving um, being humbled by him and having to slow down it's good mm. and how would you say it's been like you obviously did as much prep as you could but what's been like some of the surprise components to it yeah I think um like fatigue I have never been <laughs> so tired in my life I don't think anything can prepare you for the amount of times you have to wake up in the night for you know feeding etc um, and the physical recovery from birth has been way more challenging than I thought it was going to be. And I think, you know, when you're trying to establish breastfeeding or, you know, learn about how to be a mum when you're feeling physically sore, that's really hard. Mm. We were going to save this for later in the <laughs> podcast, but I feel like it's naturally come now. Yeah. <laughs> and you did say you're okay to talk about it. I you're love like hearing about other people's birth stories. So... <laughs> Would you like to talk us through what that was like for you? Definitely. Um, so I was very overdue. I went uh, to 41 plus five with Toby. Um, and in New Zealand, I think they don't let you go more than 10 days overdue. So on that exact day, I went in for an induction. Um, and I had the misoprostol, which is like an oral medication to try and induce labor. Um, and I had the maximum doses over two days and eventually went into established labor at Christchurch Women's. Um, and that part of my labor was amazing. I got to do all the, I guess, cliche things like labor in the shower. Um, there was Fleetwood Mac playing in the background, which is like my favorite band ever. I was getting massages from my midwife. Um, oh, wow. And <laughs> it was really nice, actually. And then I, uh, what they call failed to progress. So my waters were broken manually. And then I had uh, the oxytocin drip um, running, which made the pain just so um, insanely unbearable. Koshla and I both run. And I'd always thought that, like, my running <laughs> background <laughs> meant that I'd be able to handle the pain of labor. And I can confirm labor is way harder than running. It's just completely <laughs> different. Um, and basically from there things got a little bit gnarly Toby's heart rate was uh, dropping during contractions um, and I was actually prepped for a c-section uh, but eventually got to enough centimeters to to push and I pushed for over two hours and he still wouldn't come so our delivery was what they call a assisted delivery so it was um, using forceps uh, and I had an episiotomy and a 3A tear so my poor pelvis 
and Toby's poor head had quite the entrance into the world. Um, and it was really hard, actually. I really struggled to, um, like, I had flashbacks in the week after birth, just, like, really scared for Toby and myself, actually, in those last moments. Um, super, like, uncomfortable. Like, it was really sort of breastfeed sitting down. I had to breastfeed lying down to get off my, like, episiotomy and tear stitches. Um, but now I can look back at it and think, how lucky me and Toby are that we're both fine and there was lots of nice moments in birth like the Fleetwood Mac and my best friend and my husband were like on either side of me while I was pushing and that was pretty magical as well and the team at Christchurch Women's were just incredible like everyone was super um, respectful and like so much consent went on Um, everyone introduced themselves and the midwife cried when Toby came out and I thought that was pretty special that they were that like invested in us yeah, having a, a nice birth. So it wasn't the breathe the baby out experience I thought I might have. <laughs> um, but we did it. Oh my goodness, you are a tough cookie. That actually, <laughs> it does sound pretty traumatic, to be honest. Like, I guess you have this idea of how your birth journey might be and then for it to go, like, so opposite, down a different yeah. track to what you were thinking. It's, um yeah. yeah. Gosh. Mm-hmm. And so six weeks down the track now, is it six? Yeah, yeah. six weeks on Saturday. And how's the like intervention going from, because you've been working with Grace, the physio. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So yep. what's the plan of attack there? Um, so somehow my pelvic floor came away unscathed. I was convinced <laughs> that I was going to have a prolapse and never be able to run again without a pessary, if your listeners know what that is. Um, but Grace was amazing. I've had two appointments with her and my, yeah, my pelvic floor is, is pretty fine and definitely, um, what's the word, like rehabable. Um, so I've been given a really detailed, after an assessment, a detailed kind of exercise program that focuses on strengthening particularly the right side of my pelvic floor. That's the side that the tear and the episiotomy was on. Um, and then additional exercises to help strengthen uh, my glutes and my core to get back to running as well. So I'm not going to be running tomorrow, but I definitely should be at least walk jogging by 12 weeks, which is super exciting. Oh, yay. That's so cool. Yeah. And you've already got a goal of the Luxmore Grunt. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, so Kusha and I, am I not everyone that you're going to hopefully do a Kepler? I just well, hopefully. I, I don't like to speak too soon because I'm like, well, it still depends if I can entry. But I know. Hopefully I do. Today. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that'll be hopefully like the first event I'll do and it'll be fun for you and I to go down to TI now together and um, I'm sure if any of your listeners have done the Kepler or the Grunt, they know the atmosphere of that event is just incredible and um, I can't wait to go back. It's so fun. I'm so excited already. Such a good goal. I think so too. So Mm. to jump into the dietetic side of things now, um, Mm. what, what made you choose dietetics? I wish I had a really cool story. I feel like, you know, you listen to other people's podcasts and there's this big romantic, how they came to, you know, work in their profession. But I always took science at school. I always liked working with people and I always kind of had a, um, an inkling that I would work in health in some degree and I, I kind of looked into midwifery I looked into nursing but I hated the idea of shift work <laughs> I like I sleep too much uh, and then a careers advisor from Otago kind of presented you know this idea of being a dietitian to me and I'd actually never heard of it before um, but I thought that sounds pretty cool I liked the idea of going to Otago so I grew up in the Bay of Plenty in the North Island so very far away from Dunedin um, and then I feel super lucky that I fell in love with the study as I was studying, if that makes sense. There's so many people who go to uni 
and you know don't like what they chose to do mm. um and yeah and then I just went into it basically did the whole health science pathway loved learning um, about empowering people you know through something like food I think that's a, a privilege to work with people in that way mm, absolutely it's so cool and when before you went into dietetics and then when you started working in dietetics, mm-hmm. were your expectations matched or was it completely <laughs> different to what you're anticipating? Really good question. Where my expectations match? I think the clinical work, so like working in a hospital, I think that was really similar to what I thought it might be like. And I think our training in dietetics is very much geared towards, well, in New Zealand anyway, around that clinical job, enteral feeding you know, um, that kind of work. Uh, I think that there wasn't enough education on things like private practice, private practice work. And I definitely didn't think I could have a career full-time in private practice when I was a student dietitian. I thought that was completely unachievable. Mm. I'm probably completely the opposite to that. Yeah. Maybe I was just naive, but I remember when we first started doing, because I think in the first year of the master's, you start doing a bit of placement in Dunedin Hospital. And we yeah. were in there, I was like, man, I just wasn't expecting like dietitians to work so much in hospitals. Yeah. And then I realized like it's actually quite normal. Yeah. <laughs> and I always had this expectation of, oh, it's like clinics and outpatient settings and private practice. And I was quite surprised by just how much we are in the hospital setting. Um, so Interesting. yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. And you, when you started as a dietitian, you were in pediatrics. Yeah. 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 Super random. I just happened to get my first job in pediatrics. It wasn't something I was like looking for. I just wanted a job (laughs) as a new grad. Um, Yes. I worked with children with type 1 diabetes and uh, then worked uh, with children with cystic fibrosis as well, like my two main roles. So, where did the woman's health passion start? Random, hey. Um, so as part of my, I guess, role in diabetes at uh, in the DHB is I um, took over the gestational diabetes, uh, I guess, portfolio or clinics and kind of began to get an interest in working with pregnant women. I thought that was really, um, again, a privilege and an honour to be a part of someone's journey in pregnancy. Um, and then I actually, this is like a, this is a true story. I went as a client or a patient to a private women's health clinic um, in Christchurch. And on the enrollment form, you had to put your career or your occupation. And I wrote dietitian. And my gynecologist was like, have you ever thought about working here? I was like, what? That's super random. And also now really weird that you're my gynecologist and we might be colleagues. <laughs> um, and I chased it. I thought that sounds really cool. And um, yeah, the more that I got into women's health, the more I just felt really passionate about an area that's really poorly researched. I think women, um, you know, if we think about endometriosis and chronic pain, women are often dismissed by their experience of pain. And I really like the advocacy that I get to do with my clients. So it wasn't the super linear journey to getting in women's health, but yeah, that's how it happened. That's cool. So you started doing that on the side whilst working in the public system and then built up your own private practice starting at Oxford Women's? Yeah. So I used to work at the DHB 40 hours a week and then literally at 4.30pm I would put on my backpack and basically run across Christchurch to get to Oxford Women's Health and work in the evening clinic there every week. Um, and I used to see, I've looked back in recent times at my, my calendar and I used to see three clients a week. And before I went on maternity leave, I was seeing close to 30. So it took a long time, but I did build it up, which I'm really proud of. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And for those who aren't familiar with your monthly, what kind of clients do you work with? 
request. Um, so I work with clients who have, I guess, an interest in uh, hormones and female reproductive health. So um, for example, women who want to learn more about tracking their cycle or the uh, impact of lifestyle um, on their period experience, so period pain, uh, PMS or premenstrual syndrome, um, bowel changes across uh, their period as well. And then I also work with people who've been diagnosed with specific conditions, so polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, endometriosis, um, hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is like a big long word, um, <laughs> but those clients I'm particularly fond of. And then also I do some work around helping women to fall pregnant stay pregnant and have healthy pregnancies as well. And what about the work you do with disordered eating? Yes. So um, I did, I guess what I noticed, working with women in particular, uh, women are more, men definitely experience body image dysmorphia and disordered eating as well as females, but we all know that females are more likely to experience disordered eating. And I guess something I noticed as a dietitian, particularly working in women's health is, nearly every consult I had, something would come up around dieting or body image. And I thought, I can't keep, you know, having my blinkers on. I have to upskill and being able to manage this client group or these um, issues with food. So I did some additional training in uh, eating disorders and body image and disordered eating um, in Melbourne, actually. So those are kind of skill sets that I bring to my consultations with clients. But I also do work with people with eating disorders or disordered eating that want help with their relationship with food. Um, what are some of the most common disordered or eating disorders you work with? You know what, I think, like if we look at the prevalence of eating disorders, um, so you've got uh, bulimia, you've got anorexia, you've got binge eating disorder, and then um, a couple of other lesser known eating disorder types. I would say that most of my clients probably fit into the um, binge eating disorder group. But I think what comes up more frequently in consultations is almost that orthorexia type tendencies. So I think people who are um, particularly interested in health um, and take it to the extreme of health, those are the kind of people that are probably drawn to be working with dietitians. And I find those themes pop up in sessions more so than things like the really unwell anorexia, et cetera. Um, would you say the same in, in the clients that you work with? Mm. Definitely. I think binge eating is very common. And yeah. I think working with an athletic population, like the general orthorexia striving to be super healthy is um, common, but it shouldn't be normal. <laughs> no. Um, it's yeah. often quite disguised, hey? Like, yes. I think there's so much um, celebration and, like, affirmation people get from eating healthy or, and I'm doing, like, the inverted comma thing with my hand, um, and I think it's it can be quite confronting for clients for us to bring up actually, you know, the way that you're eating might feel healthy to you, but it's actually not healthy anymore and getting them to redefine that word health. And I find the same with exercise as well. Like yes, exercise, my oh my gosh, you're training so hard. Like look at you go and it's like supporting it when yeah, it can yeah, actually yeah. be not a positive thing for that individual. Like it could be a really unhealthy relationship with exercise. Yeah, totally um, so that can be an interesting thing as well. Mm. Yeah. What about, what are your thoughts? This is something I really wanted to discuss together. Was dietitians own relationships with food and body image? Mm, it's a big one, hey? Um, so I would say there's a, 
hadn't going to answer this question is there's a book called Just Eat It by a dietitian, uh, Laura Thomas, and she works in the UK and founded the Intuitive Eating Centre in in London. Um, And the first chapter of that book, I just absolutely loved. She talks about her own relationship with food and kind of asked the question, are people with um, a difficult relationship with food drawn to the profession of dietetics or does the profession of dietetics make our relationship with food more complicated um and i think that's kind of a chicken and egg question and they wouldn't be able to say which one came first for most people but i would say that i'd be lying if i said that being a dietitian doesn't mean that you have probably a more complex relationship with food than people who aren't dietitians Mm. um i don't know if i can like put my finger on exactly how or why but you know for example i don't know a dietitian that um, can walk into a tea room a staff room and not have their lunch meal commented on by colleagues or I feel you know the pressure of looking a certain way as a dietitian as well there's an expectation about what our body is going to look like because we're meant to be I think we're still perceived by the public as you know the food police mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> um, and I can't tell you how many times my body's been commented on particularly in pregnancy it was really intense people commenting on my body and um, that kind of you know, flicked lots of lights on for me around food. And I think it's something we have to really be mindful of, particularly if you're doing work with clients around their relationship with food. You've got to work on your own stuff. What kind of comments were they making around your pregnancy? Oh, God, everything from... Really? Uh, yeah, my gosh, yes. Particularly in those, um, like, early days of pregnancy. So I feel like my my bump with Toby didn't really kind of become prominent until maybe 25 weeks. I also dressed in a way because I work with clients who want to get pregnant. I tried to dress in a way that didn't really accentuate the fact that I was pregnant. Mm. And there was, um, when I did eventually reveal that I was expecting, there was lots of like, Oh, I thought you'd, you know, gained weight. That's nice to know that you're pregnant. I was like, wow. Okay. Or, <gasps> um, I remember someone said to me, you're looking for like, oh, I thought you were, you know, 40 weeks or so. And I would have been like 30 weeks, just silly stuff. Also the other way around. So saying that I looked really small and that made me worry about the baby. It just, it's interesting. Being pregnant makes people think they can comment and touch your body. (laughs) It's weird. (laughs) And being a dietitian, people think that they can comment on your weight as well. Totally, totally. Yeah, I've had interesting experiences even with patients who come in like this isn't private practice this always was in the public system basically and mm-hmm. they just had to comment on your shape or your size um positive and negative <laughs> yeah definitely and um sometimes you know you'd kind of shut them down and other times I'd just be so gobsmacked that you don't really know what to say <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. there's another um I remember when I went on the eating disorder course I was mentioning before uh the facilitator there mentioned this concept of performing and what dietitians do have you heard of this before so um you know tea room example you know there'll be cake on the table and the dietitian walks in and um, maybe they didn't really want cake today or maybe they had like a date scone for morning tea and they're done with you know that sweet goodness and they don't want cake but having our you know if we refuse that cake in a group setting often dietitians will perform and say well you know yes I can have cake like I'm a dietitian but it doesn't mean I can't have cake and we'll accept that food even if we don't really want it. So we kind of performed this idea um, to kind of, you know, counteract the expectation that's being put on us. And mm-hmm. I thought that was so interesting and I'm so guilty of that. Same. Oh, <laughs> gosh. Yes, like a pressure to prove that we're not just like these perfect humans who only eat healthy food. 
totally, yeah. totally. Even if we really, you know, it might be a shit keg. Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> oh no, I totally relate to that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yes. Um, with the the pregnancy for you as well, and don't worry, I have asked Sarah before jumping on the podcast if it's okay to talk about this. I'm not just throwing her in the deep end. Um, it wasn't an easy journey for you. And no. working with clients who are experiencing a challenging journey getting pregnant as well, how how has that impacted your work? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, I, um, I thought, <laughs> naively, that I could get pregnant really easily. And it's kind of silly that I thought that, given what I know that, you know, your chance of conceiving when there's a couple with no uh, issues, like, that might interrupt conception it's only 20 percent a month anyway mm. but I naively thought that I was going to be this fertile myrtle <laughs> it was going to get really quickly um and we had a miscarriage after six months of trying it was a really early miscarriage but really rattled my cage it really mm. played into anxiety or fear that I wasn't going to be able to fall pregnant and I think working with clients who are going through fertility treatment I kind of thought maybe my anxiety around that was heightened um, and then we eventually conceived Toby after eight months, but man, my anxiety and pregnancy was through the roof basically mm-hmm. until his pregnancy was considered viable, which is, you know, 26 weeks. Um, and when you can feel them kick, it kind of quietens down. But I think now and in, in retrospect, now that I have a healthy baby earth side, I think, um, although I wish a lot of that didn't happen, my empathy and lens working with clients going through fertility now is just completely different to what it was before. So I thought that I had an empathetic lens, but um, I don't think anything, you know, lived experience gives you so much, doesn't it? And the way that I discuss pregnancy, the way that I interact with clients, the clinic setting. um, I remember noticing the clinic that I work at had photos of babies on the wall. And I never noticed it before. And and after uh, struggling to fall pregnant, I thought, how awful (laughs) to have photos of babies on a wall at a clinic where women are coming to try and start a family. It's that kind of lens will never really go away, I don't think. Have you removed the pictures of the clinic? Yes, the pictures are gone. Yeah, 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 definitely. Oh, they have. But even like, I had a um, I had a client give me like a photo of their baby to say thank you for helping them, and um, as much as I wanted to put it on, you know, the notice board of my clinic room, I was like, I just can't do that. I'm, you know, I'm going to keep it because it's a beautiful memento, but I'm just not going to do that. And I remember when I announced my maternity leave on your monthly's Instagram. My gosh, the amount of times I wrote that and deleted it because I just couldn't bring myself. <laughs> To, to tell people that this really special, amazing thing was happening to me when I knew that there was lots of my clients who just longed to be a mum. Mm. And I really hoped that I did it in a way that was respectful for their feelings, but also not being ashamed of my own pregnancy. It was hard. That is so hard. I, I did see that post and it was beautiful. And I think you wrote it very well. But that is a very tricky situation. And it must have also been really hard for you when you were going through like that horrible time after the miscarriage and yeah. having messages or clients come in and be like, oh my gosh, I'm pregnant, blah, blah, blah. Like you so want to be happy for them, but at the same time, you're probably struggling so much with your own emotion. Yeah, that was really, really hard. And I remember getting quite cynical. I hope it never came across to clients, but I remember I had this one client. Um, it's funny, often they would share with me that they were pregnant before anyone else in their life. <laughs> <laughs> this is really weird. But, um, I remember her sitting in front of me um, in clinic and she told me that she was six weeks pregnant, which was around the time of my miscarriage. And I remember thinking, 
um, it probably won't last. I never said that to her, but that really cynical, awful thinking around one in four pregnancies will end in miscarriage. I really had to watch that that didn't come through in the way I was treating clients. And I, I really hope it didn't. Um, but it was hard. I, I lost joy really quickly for working with pregnant people just because of my stuff that I was going through. Um, and I took that to supervision. If you've got dietitians listening, I think that's really important to do your own work and be aware of your own stuff. And we're professionals, but we're also people. And, you know, I'm sure like oncology dietitians, if they've got someone going through cancer treatment in their family and having to show up to work and, and leave, you know, their emotions and feelings outside of a clinic room or, um, you know, like dietitians working in sport, if they've got an injury that's preventing them from doing the event that they train so hard for, and then you've got a client working with you that's doing that same event, it manifests in lots of different dietetics, I think. Mm, that's very true. Oh, thank you for sharing that. That's, um, yeah, it's quite personal stuff to share, but I'm sure a lot of people appreciate you sharing your story. Hopefully. Mm. And being a, a working mama, <laughs> hmm. has... <laughs> Has it been what you've expected, like juggling? Because obviously you're, you're on maternity leave, but we all know you're still doing work behind the scenes. <laughs> so has it been what you'd expected or do you think you had unrealistic expectations? <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so silly. I totally thought I was going to have this like sleeping kid and there's like a little bassinet next to me and I could, you know, have meetings and do all the things that I was doing before. Um, what you can't hear is, well, hopefully you can't hear, literally I can hear outside the office door, my husband has my son in the front pack and is like playing a white noise machine to make him sleep while I'm doing this talk with Krishna. And I think, you know, not having that support just would make any of this really hard. So I hope that over, he's only six weeks old, so I'm kind of hoping that it's going to get easier as he gets older, but I definitely bit off more than I could chew. 10 out of 10, Sean. <laughs> I don't know, he's doing great. <laughs> I appreciate that you're doing this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good. It's nice to not um, have him on me for five minutes. It's good. Absolutely. <laughs> so another thing I wanted to comment on, I'm sort of jumping around everywhere, but um, <laughs> with your work, what is something you wish more women knew about their own bodies? I, I guess what I would say is it still surprises me how many people have no idea how their cycle works and the connection with their cycle and their overall health. And you probably see this a lot with um, athletes, Kushla, is there's still that awful normalization that it's okay to not have a period um, or it's okay to have, you know, pain and, and take, you know, really intense pain medication to go to work or um, it's okay to have, you know, flooding during your period and have to change your clothes throughout the day. Like that stuff's not normal. And there's so much that we can do about it and support women to understand. And um, that would be a really big thing. The other thing is understanding how contraception works is something else that comes up a lot in my sessions. And this isn't like a rant about contraception. I think that's the most incredible gifts that females have um, fairly been given in, you know, the modern medicine world. But women don't understand what they're taking, how it works how it affects their um, everything bone health mood libido mm. Yeah. Mm. what are your thoughts on the like obviously the marina iud and copper iud would you say they're a little bit superior to oral contraceptive pills 
I think it depends on what you're looking for. So they all have pros and cons. There's not a single contraception choice that I would say, this is the one that everyone should have. Mm. Um, I guess what I like about the Marina and the copper IUD is they don't impact on ovulation. And ovulation is how females make hormones like estrogen and progesterone, which are really important for our physical, emotional and mental health as well. Um, but they both have negative, you know, they have to get in there somehow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you've had a marina or a copper IUD, you know that's not super easy. That's fun. Um, so that's, <laughs> it's not super fun, so that's not for everybody. Um, the copper IUD is known to make periods heavier by up to 20 to 30%. So lots of people with a copper IUD end up with iron deficiency. Um, so there's lots of, I guess, pros and cons, but I would say they're better choices if you're wanting to protect ovulation. Absolutely. Um, with the women you would see that come in with hypothalamic amenorrhea, such a mouthful that word. Um, how many of those females would be active individuals who are undertaking a very low carb diet? Oh, I couldn't give you a percentage, but my instinct just then was to say all of them, and yeah. I stopped myself. Um, I would say there's definitely among clients who are experiencing HA, there's a perception that they're not over exercising. So the, the person themselves doesn't see their activity levels as intense but I look at it and think oh my gosh that's a lot um and it's either low carb vegan or plant-based is a really big one um fasting is the other really big one that I see that group partaking in and then low carb would be the other part of that puzzle and when you say fasting is this mm -hmm. intermittent fasting or is it um training fasted both mm -hmm. so I think um Particularly if someone's participating in exercise to lose weight, I think they're quite tempted into a lot of those uh, like fasting type diets because of the promise of dramatic weight loss. Um, and then there's a lot of people who are really active that choose to not eat before training for lots of different reasons. Some of it's disordered, I think, and some of it's not. So um, you've got lots of clients, Kush, I'm sure, who you know eat something, go for a run, and they know the public toilets in the area better than anyone else because they get runner's gut the minutes they try and eat when they're training. So then they start skipping breakfast altogether um, rather than working on that with other strategies um, or just not used to eating before the morning or I don't need to eat before training. That's the other story that people tell themselves. Yes, or oh, I just don't have time. Yeah. I'll just miss it and just get out the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Oh, um, so your advice to females in their reproductive years would to not be doing intermittent fasting or low-carb diets? <laughs> no, absolutely not. There's, I mean, lots of science behind that as well, not just my own beliefs on, um, yeah. I guess, yeah, relationship with food. But, you know, for example, we know that carbohydrate intake, not just calorie intake, uh, helps the pituitary gland to make a hormone called luteinizing hormone. Mm -hmm. And luteinizing hormone is what um, predictates ovulation. So in short, Athletes, even if they eat enough calories, if they're devoid of carbohydrate, they're still going to have problems with ovulation. You don't ovulate, you don't get a period. Um, so that would be why I say carbs are really important when you're recovering from hypothalamic amenorrhea. We also know that if you train faster as a female in the morning um, of reproductive age, then your cortisol um, increases um, after training more than if you'd had something to eat. And the amount that you have to eat is not five wheat bakes and a piece of toast. If you want to eat that, that's amazing. Go you. Um, but we're talking like a banana and a tablespoon of peanut butter or like a really quick piece of toast with some peanut butter before you head out the door. It doesn't have to be a lot of food. And 
you know, you brought up, Krishna, that narrative that I don't have enough time. And I'm like, mate, <laughs> peeling a banana takes like, what, 10 seconds? Mm-hmm. It's not hard. Yeah. And I find those people that don't make time for their nutrition in the morning, their body's just compensating later in the day and it backfires on them. Totally. And I mean, you brought up that you see lots of binge uh, clients that uh, identify with binge eating disorder. If you look at their timeline of food, there's this complete undernourishment going on until midday. And then it all comes out at three o'clock when you're tired already from working all day or you're, you know, from training in the morning. And there's that perception that they're overeating. But if you look at their entire day, if we just shimmied everything forward, (laughs) it would be a really consistent intake. And because they've started their day with like half a cup of oats and honey, you know, and then had a tiny lunch and then 80% of their food intakes after 4 (laughs) p.m. Yeah, rice crackers for lunch. I've got a thing against rice crackers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The other question around intermittent fasting. So it, it is interesting because I would have like a mixture of clients whereby some it would be appropriate and by some I'm meaning a menopausal woman with insulin resistance. Yeah. And, you know, that is where actually some time-restricted feeding can be of benefit to them but that does not mean that same advice is applicable to young active females i agree yeah 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 totally agree and a lot of the research on fasting if you look at the studies the male participants not 25 year old females (laughs) there's hardly any research out there on active females (laughs) yeah no well what's the most frustrating thing for you about working in the nutrition space do you think (laughs) um a couple of things one is I think and I hate the elitism that comes with the word dietitian I think there's a lot of dietitians online that shoot down other people giving nutrition advice you know nutritionists or medical professionals that are giving nutrition advice I think there is probably a um, a lack of awareness or understanding particularly in the general public around the training it takes to be a dietitian the purpose that we serve with clients the knowledge and skill sets that we have. I think that's still, I find that quite frustrating really. Um, And what else do I find frustrating? I think everybody eats. So everybody has an opinion on food. (laughs) So um, yeah, it's, that can be really hard when you're working with clients as they're getting opinions on nutrition from like 50 other places. And often a dietitian is the last person they've come to see. So you're undoing all this incorrect and harmful advice they've had from the hairdresser and the next door neighbor and everyone mm. in between. <laughs> it, by what you mean by shooting down, like, do you mean um, you don't like it when dietitians shoot down other nutrition professionals or that yeah. you don't feel that we're valued? And I, I, I find it, um, I personally don't like seeing dietitians belittle nutritionists. I mm. think that's really unfair and there are some incredible nutritionists that I work alongside um, in the women's health space that have so much experience and value with their clients. And it's obviously a shame for them that the word nutritionist isn't protected because there is people working in that space that don't have the qualification or aren't working within their scope of practice. And I just really don't like when dietitians kind of get on their high horse, you know, but I'm a dietitian and you're just a nutritionist. Mm-hmm. I think that's way better than that. Mm-hmm. Is what I think. Mm, I totally agree with that as well. Yeah. I, I do think, though, that the frustration for us or that I sometimes feel is when non-nutrition individuals, so say they're a personal trainer or um, another yeah. discipline with no background in nutrition, starts trying to 
just take what you've said and tell it to their clients or um or kind of try and cover all bases you know as a coach or whatever and they have no nutrition backing and I find it really hard to approach that situation without being like a dick yeah (laughs) um but also like they're not practicing within their scope at all um yeah I find that quite frustrating I always give the example to my clients um particularly around exercise prescription I'm like can you imagine if I tried to write you you know like think about me and my my birth and my recovery to running you know going to Grace who's a a physiotherapist specializing in women's health there's a respect that this is the person to give me a tailored plan um and can you imagine if I tried to give one of my postpartum clients a plan to go back to running like we respect that this is our scope and this is how we should work and what you're saying is that there's other um you know areas of work where people aren't respecting their lane and letting us do our thing to help clients and them do their thing Mm, no I think practicing within scope is really important yeah 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 okay anything else you wanted to discuss Sarah how's your puppy how's puppy how's Ted (laughs) he is good he's locked away because he'd just been distracting in this podcast at the moment Um, he's not in a front pack with your husband He would outgrow it within a matter of weeks. So he right. he's 13 weeks and I, I weigh him every week and he's 14 kgs abs of yesterday. Oh my goodness. He is a big boy. He loves his a food. A big boy. Um, it's been quite a difference when we had Bernie. Bernie had like diarrhea for six weeks straight. I'm yeah. not kidding. So the puppy experience with Bernie was quite different and stressful, but it's been so much fun with Ted. Yeah. Amazing. The second kids, eh? Apparently they're always easier. So much easier. <laughs> Very cool. And hopefully um, the birth of seconds is also <laughs> yeah, a lot easier. We can't think about that yet one day. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's very fair. <laughs> no. Um, and you weren't interrupted by Toby. I was expecting to have a little visit. Same, 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 same. Um, I can kind of hear him squealing, so he's definitely going to want to be fed the minute I walk out of this office. Um, but... I think Sean's protecting your podcast from a Toby interruption. <laughs> oh, thanks, Sean. <laughs> thanks, Sean. Good point for him. No. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's been so good to have you on. It's been um, a, a bit of a quick one today. Um, but, yeah, it's been great to have you on and answer a few questions around women's health and your experience as a dietitian. Um, it'd be great to have you on again soon. Yeah, anytime. Thank you for providing a really safe, warm space to talk about my birth and my work and everything in between. It's been amazing. Thanks for sharing.